Begin driving. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? Welcome to Noam on the Move. A podcast looking at how transportation evolved throughout the years and how disruptive technologies will continue to transform it. Here's your host, Noam Metal. You have reached your destination. Welcome to another episode of Noam on the Move. My special guest is Joanna Pinkerton, President and CEO of Central Ohio Transit Authority. Joanna joined CODA with more than uh, 20 years in the engineering and transportation industries. Most recently, she served as the Chief Operating Officer at the Transportation Research Center, the nation's largest independent automotive proving ground and vehicle development and testing center. Joanna is nationally recognized for expertise in addressing the challenges the mobility industry is currently facing, which includes focus on equity and community transformation when deploying new technology. Last but not least, she serves in the board of directors for ITS America, Intelligent Transportation Society of America, and the Transportation Research Center, TRC, and also served as the co-chair of the American Public Transportation Association Mobility Recovery and Restoration Task Force and Drive Ohio Government Advisory Board. So as you guys can tell, Joanna is involved in quite a lot. Pleasure to have you here, Joanna. Thank you for joining. Well, I'm glad to be asked, Noam. Appreciate you making time for this really important conversation about where mobility is headed in the future. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, happy to have you. So let's, before we jump in, talking about larger concepts and your unique view in this space, I always like to start at the personal level. So we talk about concepts of transportation, of moving masses of people from point A to point B or serving entire communities. But in the end of the day, Transportation is a is a word that when you boil it down means something for every individual in terms of our personal life, how it impacts ourselves. So I'm curious for you, where does that personal connection come from and, and how does that relate to you? I think it's incredible that you made a, that observation right off the bat that transportation means something to everyone and it may mean something different to everyone, but we all have issues regarding mobility. You know, if you can't move, you can't live. Although mobility is really my passion, my early engineering career was really focused on the larger aspect of our nation's infrastructure. And so the evolution into mobility throughout my career path really became part of, I guess, a maturity and understanding what a, a barrier this can be to people's social and economic prosperity. And I, I grew up in a part of the state of Ohio, more Southern close to Appalachia. My family is Appalachian. You drive an hour or so to work, maybe more. So your ability to move had a direct impact on your ability to bring a paycheck home, as it does for all Americans. When you think about it, um, in particular, in central Ohio, almost 28%, so between 25 and 30% of the household income goes to mobility. And that's even higher in southern Ohio, southeastern Ohio. It's well above a third of the family income. So you're talking about people having to make choices between a fundamental right of the ability to move versus food, housing, recreation, healthcare. So I take it really seriously. I see how it impacts uh, the elderly, uh, those in rural communities, and even more so in uh, large communities where we just have decades old systems, which were put into place, which literally created barriers for certain people and for certain neighborhoods. So it's just, it's really personal to me that 
everyone should have the same right to move. I'm enjoying this part of my career the most. So you talked about rural transit, and that's a concept that I think if you were asked the public, okay, what what does transit mean to you? Association, they would likely start with the cities and bustling metropolis. So your experience coming from a more rural background, explain what what does transit look like in the rural community and how does that differ, if you will, from, let's say, in central Columbus? Sure. Well, even in central Ohio, we cover a 562 square mile uh, territory, uh, very urban at its core. And within a a few miles, it becomes suburban and almost exurban. So it's all connected. And then when you think about where it gets really rural, a few counties out, take, for example, we have 88 counties, uh, the majority of which are rural. 61 of those counties have rural transit. So particularly those accessing social services, aging in place, if you do not have access to a device, a mobile device, whether it's in your hand or whether it has wheels, then you're homebound. And I don't think any of us envision that being a future that's acceptable for any person. So in our rural communities, they rely very heavily on transit, particularly for seniors in those accessing workforce job opportunities. Yeah, that's an interesting point about about the workforce, really, because if you're in, in some communities, the lower income households are living outside or further away from the urban center, but on the flip side of it are more reliant on their commute into the urban center. So I guess it kind of leads to something you're talking about, uh, you were talking about, which is there's a big discussion now. Should we consider transit as a right that or a service that is should be you know given to our citizens, or is this something we should think about it more like a business model where, and the context for this, of course, is the conversation around the sustainability of funding transit agencies and what we've seen during COVID, the enormous burden that that's had. So how do we weigh both of the the costs and then also providing that service to the community? So I think the cost benefit is linked. I think it's inextricably linked. You cannot have economic prosperity and social prosperity if you are not addressing both. For example, you mentioned kind of that formula of a lower wage worker having to live where they can afford to live, but then that changes their commute pattern. Most people I know, especially growing up, no one drove alone. You you figured out a car sharing system. You had a little miniature public transit system yourself. You threw three three tradesmen in a truck and went to a job site, or you picked a neighbor up, and, and you were doing it out of necessity. So I I think that the social prosperity agenda fits very well with the economic prosperity. One of the biggest topics we have, and it's such a a blessing in our community, we're doing really well in Central Ohio, a booming economy. It has been for 10 years. We have a prosperity agenda that we plan on being just as successful for the next 10 years. We're having trouble with labor availability. And the number one thing that employers are mentioning with turnover rates and access to labor is their ability to be mobile enough to get to the job site. We actually have jobs that cannot be filled because people don't have a way to commute to the job site. Hmm. So I don't think they're um, separate, Noam. I think the the benefit cost has to be calculated on the opportunity cost that's being lost. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how on the federal side now they consider moving forward, you know, the funding requests that are coming from the states and local agencies on that. I guess looking forward now, if we look at what I like to do often on on this podcast is 
look to the past a bit to understand where we're going. So if we think about transit, really it started in the 1800s with horse-drawn carriage and steam-powered trains. Then we kind of moved on to cable electric power trains. And by 1900s, we had cars and buses and different innovations that were transformational, right? Moving from horses to buses. You know, it's been a while now since we've had that next big transformation on the transportation transit side. So what do you think is the next big thing that's on the horizon that maybe we're not thinking about? So you're asking me to project the future and what's next? Yeah, and then Everyone based on knows. that, I'm going to go and invest uh, on the stock market based on <laughs> <Okay>. your projection. <laughs> you and me both. I really think the next transformation is digital. We're already in an era where consumers are asking themselves, do I need to make a trip at all, like a physical trip, or can this be handled digitally? And even if they do need to go somewhere, the trends have already shown that people want services. So they want mobility as a service. They want less responsibility for the ownership component, and they just want to know that they have access. And conversations of access, particularly when it comes to digital access or the next generation of vehicles, regardless of what those vehicles may look like or how they're moving, how they're operated, needs to take into mind equitable access. You know, the last transformation, whether it was um, a car or a bus, was really precipitated by the expansion of the interstate highway system. So we have systems in place, infrastructure in place, and but now it's a matter of turning it into a system. You have physical infrastructure underutilized. There's always this running joke in the transportation industry. I think you know what I'm about to say. And it's that a congested highway has 75% capacity all the time when it's all single occupant vehicles, right? So we don't need to widen, not to mention we can't afford to widen. We have to better utilize what we have. So I think that the transformation is really digital. It's access to information. And when you can take people who are either transit reliant or those who are making choices and put the information in their hands, you open up an entirely different world of options. Yeah, it's interesting because what you're saying is we're going to move from a focus on innovation in the physical world to innovation that's being driven from the data or digital side that will essentially create efficiencies on our processes. So using mm -hmm. the same mechanisms we have today, but in a vastly different way in terms of how we uh, use the data to approach operational efficiencies. That's right. I don't think we can even conceptualize how much more capacity and I don't just mean you know vehicle capacity or passenger capacity, but how much capacity we can get out of our existing systems when we start looking at them through a lens of analyzing better and more sets of data. So I want to talk to you about a little bit about leadership and specifically women in the workforce on the transportation side. You are one of the more charismatic leaders I know in the transportation space, period, <laughs> not wet women or, or men or anything of that sort. But- when you look at the uh, workforce, especially on the public transportation side, I think I saw studies somewhere that said about 15% of women are in the transport of, you know, the composition of it is demographic about 15% of women in it and leadership role, that number goes down even further. I'm curious, A, why do you think that is? Why are we have that gap? And it's not just unique to transportation, of course, but I think it's potentially even more uh, acute. And Given your current role and your leadership position, how do we help change that dynamic? I appreciate you asking this question. As you might imagine, it's really near and dear to my heart. 
So whether it's our industry or any really highly technical field, particularly engineering related fields, there is uh, a ceiling that gets hit even when numbers look a little better. When I was in academia and research, it, it was pretty awful where the majority of women, only 12% of them stayed past that kind of 10 year mark. <laughs> so you're losing them early and mid career. I think my personal experience is before conversations were being had like they are now, and I really appreciate that people can have a dialogue like this comfortably and safely. It wasn't talked about. And particularly as women, you had to fit yourself into a box. You had to fit yourself into the mold. So I had to learn to work in that world, which means I had to make people in that world comfortable with me. And now that people are willing to have more open conversations, I just did a, actually, I did a a webinar last night with three other CEOs talking about our journey on being equity champions. And I mentioned the fact that it's not about taking things and resources away from other people. It's just about making the table bigger. You know, at some point in my career, I had great mentorship and was invited to the table. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to invite more people to the table who might not have had opportunity. And we also have to acknowledge that there are people, primarily women of women of color, people of color and women who have not been invited. And we may look at them and say, why aren't they excelling without self-reflecting on, did I make it so that they could not? Were they invited? Mm-hmm. Is it normal? Is it okay? And the answer is yes. But it, it, it doesn't really surprise me that it hasn't changed much. I'm, I'm disappointed to hear that transportation's at like 15%. Uh, I hope that by the time I retire, that's really quite different. Um, you know, at, at CODA, we have 33% female representation, almost 60% uh, female at our executive and in, in management ranks, which I'm very proud of. It wasn't like that when I arrived, but we've made a big difference in just a short amount of time. But still, when you think about 33%, that's not that's really not that great considering the American population is 52% female. So we have some work to do. Yeah, you're the majority. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, one thing I've noticed too is that the bar is set at a different standard for mm-hmm. women versus men in terms of the expectation to rise up. So there's a higher standard, a higher bar that kind of women have to achieve unfairly, I would say almost in terms of it's not just in terms of performance, but more, I would say, about the presence, confidence, forward-facing, which kind of is, is very stands out in terms of the, the current workforce, which is interesting. It's a dynamic of how we fix that or how we adjust for that. So it's the same standard as we look at a manager or someone that would be management material, quote-unquote, that is a guy versus a woman that would be similarly qualified or even more qualified. I think it's important for us to be just aware of these sometimes unintentional bias. You know, sometimes it's, it's deliberate, but I think more often than not, it's unintentional bias. Mm -hmm. We all have them, whether it's against, you know, race, ethnicity, you know, origin, orientation, gender, we all have bias that we were raised with and we're all adults. We need to grow up and treat each other like adults it's a really good practice, I think, to look at yourself and say, you know, am I judging this person based on their performance or what I am projecting on them myself? But, but there, are, there are a few stories. I don't think your podcast is long enough about um, you know, just how it is for a woman in the professional, particularly the executive working world, terms that are passion and bold when it's male versus 
hysterical and irrational when it's female. So I appreciate the charismatic compliment you gave me earlier. I'll, I'll take that one any day. I think sometimes there might be other words that get used, but that <laughs> that's okay too. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's talk about Columbus for a bit, because uh, as much as I love Columbus, it's not the city that would top of mind, be top of mind for the random Amer- U.S. citizen. You'd, you'd say, what are the, the most dominant or prominent cities that come to mind in the U.S.? They wouldn't say Columbus when it comes to that. But when you ask a transportation professional, what are the leading cities in the U.S.? Top any list, you'll have Columbus there with some of the smart city initiatives. Mm-hmm. So what happened there that went right? Like what, 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 what has Columbus been doing that's been garnering that attention and really pushing forward and becoming a leader from the innovation perspective? Well, you know, Noam, you've got to watch us Midwesterners. We're, we're sneaky. We're smarter <laughs> than we look. We have been a, really a hotbed uh, during the entire history of the nation of innovation. Everyone knows the stat that we're within, you know, one day's travel, just a few hundred miles of like 70% of the nation's population and economic center. So it physically makes sense. But we really have been a cradle of innovation, whether it's aviation, electricity, telephones, rail. This is pretty deep in our DNA here. And we have really surprisingly deep assets. So we have academic institutions, the largest if or one of the largest universities in the nation. We have public infrastructure. We have thought leaders. We have private sector you know, corporations. We have an incredible venture capital and startup community, and we're all connected. And we realize that, you know, even though we kind of have this external Midwestern modesty, we know how to get things done internally. And I do appreciate that people are paying attention to that. A lot of it has to do with the great economic growth that we're experiencing at the moment, because people are taking notice of that and saying, well, if a, if a town like Columbus can do it, then how can we do it as well? But it's really about our willingness to get along and to be transparent and to be collaborative. So take me behind the curtain of that, if you will. What are some of the things that are not the dirty laundry, if you will, but the the challenges on the flip side of that that you're seeing in Columbus and working between these agencies, uh, moving things forward? So it's not so much dirty laundry as it is heavy lifting. So when you think about it, why would a CEO of a transit agency be so interconnected to the university, to the healthcare systems. I have people from the public utilities who sit on my board of directors, banking systems. Why Why would we take that extra time? And why do I sit on the Countywide Poverty Innovation Council to make sure that all of the systems which are connected address our poverty rate? So it's really about the heavy lifting, not so much the dirty laundry that we're all willing to give extra time to these initiatives. Again, it's back to how interconnected things are. I don't see that everywhere. I'll, I'll give you a little point in reference. I don't want to be too, um, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but uh, even when I was recruited to take this job at CODA, I think the majority of the world, the transportation industry was like, why would you hire someone who's one, not been a CEO and who hasn't been in the transit industry for 25 years? Mm-hmm. And just that thought process of having collaborative leadership and conveners who can see the connection between things, um, that is very unique in our community. You know, right now I'm looking at health outcomes. And so I spend more time with public service agencies 
hospital CEOs and um, some microtransit providers across the nation than I do working on, you know, the fare box issues on the transit system. So it's really about wanting to explore uh, new areas. Let's dive deeper on the collaboration that you were speaking about, because I think it's really interesting when I've, and this is a, a topic that's close to my heart, obviously, with the work we do uh, way care about bringing together these agencies. Transit specifically is one that's always been a question in my mind. Why is it so disjointed in terms of uh, the technology side, the collaboration, the data sharing between transit services at the core of scheduling, bus routes, et cetera, and mm-hmm. traffic operations, first responders, and all the kind of other transportation bucket? And, and you guys are doing things differently, but why has it been so siloed uh, over the course of history and how do we change that? I think it would be fair to acknowledge that this is not unique to transit. When you think of any industry that has gone through digital transformation, it may have been earlier. You know, Some companies began doing it in the 90s, some in the early 2000s, some a decade ago. But there had to be a tipping point where you said, I will work more on the future than I will maintaining the current state. A lot of that has to do with proprietary technology. As you well know, being a startup with new technology and how challenging it can be to integrate systems. When I started at one of my employers a few years ago, I had one system where I had to log in to access HR benefits. I had a different system to log in for email. I had a different system to log in you know, to report an incident on campus, all of these different systems, which were just connected. And that was just a few years ago. So I think we're at a reckoning where we understand, our industry understands that uh, we have to tear down those silos. And, And again, I'll go back to proprietary technology. There's not been a lot of investment in making sure that new technology was accessible to people using public transit. But now that there's been an acknowledgement that that's a key component of how it's going to better utilize our systems, I think we're well on our way. Yeah. And I think also the fact that the way we think about transit or mobility has already happened on the private sector side on the digital front. So like the Mm -hmm. Ubers, the Lyfts, the the Vias, that already is based on the digital SaaS platforms. It makes it kind of an intuitive leap on the public transit side to do the same thing. So it's interesting to see that that happen. Uh, and I'm hoping, of course, that that happens quickly because <laughs> it's something that's very much needed in the industry. Well, Joanna, I want to thank you for joining me for this fantastic conversation. And uh, I'm sure the audience has learned a lot today. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate your time as well, Noam.